it could be, the Psalms could be described as faith in God expressed in poetry and song. They are a treasure house uh, of devotion, of Israel's devotion, written over many centuries. And as we look into them, they illustrate the very special relationship that God had with this people that he had chosen, that we have now been incorporated into, God's chosen people, their creator. And uh, although God is in, in the Psalms, God is acknowledged to be holy and righteous and to be feared. The fear of God, you'll hear about quite a bit this morning, but he's also revealed in the Psalms as loving, compassionate, forgiving, and one to call on and run to for refuge in time of need. So we see not only <clears throat> songs of worship extolling what are termed the, the perfections of God, God's character, but also expressions of longing and hopes, frustrations and even complaints. The note in my study Bible says, tells me that 55 of the 150 psalms are laments. There the psalmist having a grouse, really, to God, having a moan to God about his circumstances or God's slowness uh, in doing what he thought he should do. And um, whatever the, the mood in the scriptures, God is always the, the central theme of the psalms and the point of reference for every situation in life and condition of heart uh, that is mentioned. Now, often we call the Psalms a hymn book, uh, and they are a wonderful source of devotion and worship, but uh, they're not a hymn book of religious niceties, uh, not, you know, blessed thoughts, as it were, but a, a treasure store of what it means for a people to have a relationship with the living God. Most importantly, and this is perhaps the biggest lesson that we need to learn from the Psalms, they show us that we can be real with God. Of course, we reverence God, we come to God with reverence and awe, but it's okay to pour out our disappointments and frustrations to God, and fire questions at Him, such as, when? When are you going to do it, Lord? When are you going to come up with your promises? How long? And then, why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? All such questions are not asked uh, in a religious vacuum, but with a faith that however bad things are, God is the one who can save. God is the one who can deliver and restore. And of course, we recognise and remember that Jesus himself, in a time of anguish, cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus even questioned the Father in his humanness. And humanness comes out in the Psalms. The psalmist for human. And that's good, because that's who we are. Complaining to God is a legitimate expression of a relationship with him. Complaining about God to other people isn't. It places God at a cold distance from us. That God, that's what he said. But God welcomes our honest feelings and complaints towards him. The Psalms are multifaceted, which means they, they carry lots of different ideas and thoughts and topics, and many of them contain a mixture of subjects and moods. Um, and because objective truth, when I say that, objective truth about God, 
They tell us that God is good, God is great, God is merciful, God is love, and so on. But because that is mixed with subjective feelings of the psalmist, we, we have to be careful not to build doctrine on somebody's reflection of life and how God they think God is treating them, especially if they're speaking out in anger. So as an example, <coughs> Psalm 139, we, we get this. <coughs> If only you would slay the wicked, O God, away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Well, that's an honest expression from the psalmist. But we have greater revelation. We have the teaching of Jesus incorporated in the New Testament. And uh, uh, we know that one day God will slay the wicked if they do not turn to him and repent. But in the meantime, God is patient with them, not willing that any should perish. And we are commanded what to do with our enemies, to love them and to do good to them, even those who hate us because that helps God in his process of drawing people to himself. So, we have to be careful with the Psalms not, not to build doctrine on, on certain personal expressions that come through. Also, because they're about honest expressions of relationship, warts and all, they're not intended to be over-analyzed. Of course, we'll analyze them a little bit this morning, but they are intended to be read, recited, and sung in celebration and worship of the living God. And, what, and to celebrate what it is like to be people who belong to God, uh, whom God has owned as his own. So as I said, we're going to look at Psalm 34. I'll read <coughs> all the way through. Then we'll just pick at it verse by verse. So I hope to get through it all this morning, giving more attention to some verses than others. Yeah. Father, help us. This morning, Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the honesty of it. We thank you that it's written by people who are weak and foolish like us. And Lord, we can learn from that. And we can learn most of all that, Lord, you are not put off by our foolishness or our weakness. But you welcome us as we come to you humbly. And we do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, all his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weary and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive 
to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and saves those, saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from all of them. He protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked, the foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants, no one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. I've kind of grouped some verses under different headings. I've just turned over too many pages. The first one is a lifestyle of praise and worship. The first three verses, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Often our speech um, reveals our heart. What is most important to us and how we view life, isn't it? Uh, often the speech of the world, and this is not universal, but we hear so much of it, the speech of the world is characterised by complaining, cynicism, despair, slander, accusation, and even blasphemy. But for the people who know God, it should be different. Our language, our conversation, should be a marked contrast to this. Now David was determined to be different. Verse 1, he says, I will extol the Lord. And then later, his praise will always be on my lips. This was the determination of his life that God would fill his conversation. God would fill his lips. Now I'm sure he didn't mean that he was going to punctuate every sentence with a praise the Lord brother and praise the Lord sister. Um, I've met people a bit like that and it can be slightly wary. I'm not saying that's always inappropriate. But but, but it's rather that he is able to look at life, look at circumstances, whether good or bad, and see God's love and mercy and grace and goodness in every situation that he finds. There's always something to praise God for, always something to be thankful for, and where appropriate to speak well of him to others and give him glory. Now, as Christians, we've experienced the amazing grace of God. And it should transform our speech and our uh, language and conversation. Uh, if we are prompted to be a grumbler, then the grace of God should overwhelm us. We should be conscious of it. We should remind ourselves of it so that our conversation is different. I believe that the grace of God is an antidote to grumbling. I've used this illustration before, but it's worth repeating in this context. A preacher that we used to listen to was C.J. Mahaney, and he decided that in his conversations with people, um, he would often moan about situations and about his condition. And he decided to be different. And so when people spoke to him and said, oh, hello, C.J., how are you? He would start off by saying, better than I deserve. And then he would go on to talk about the grace of God and give glory to things in his life. Now, we may not all want to do that, but let's be more conscious of God's grace than the things that we might moan about. I would extol the Lord at all times. 
His praise will continually be, will always be on my lips. And um, that may be something we do in private, but the next verse suggests others will hear it and benefit from it. My soul will boast in the Lord, let the afflicted hear and rejoice. I think it's rather sobering if we stop and think and, and wonder what impression people have on us. And particularly, does our conversation commend God and the Gospel? Are we commending the Gospel with our conversation, our everyday conversation? Uh, some boasting is obnoxious, isn't it? Have you met people that they're always boasting about themselves, their family, their children, what their children have done, what their grandchildren have done? They're actually so interested in you, they only want to tell you what amazing family they have and, and how good it is. This is not that kind of boasting. This is boasting in God. Um, it's God-centered and it can help others. Paul writes to the Corinthians, it is because of him that's God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness and redemption. In a sense, he was saying, all that you are now as a Christian, all that has been given to you is because, of, because God has given you Jesus, and he goes on to say, therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It may well be, and I trust that's true of all of us in some degree. We may have a testimony of God's love and grace, maybe in a time of distress and hardship. And sharing with those who are suffering um, may help to lift their spirits and give them faith that God can help them too. I believe this is what the psalmist is saying. Is, Let the afflicted hear and rejoice um, because he has given them faith to seek God uh, for themselves. And it, when we give our testimony, it shouldn't be about what we did. Uh, it's about what God did. And um, I, I, I've listened to some testimonies, and I'll mention it again at the moment. And it's about, they're always about what I did. You know, like, um, you know I was going through a hard time, but, you know, I fasted for a week. It's pretty painful, but I did fast for a week. And I saw, I read the Bible a lot more, and so on. And God is hardly mentioned. It's all about what they do. But what's going to help people most is what God did, because what they have to do may not be the same as what you have to do, and it's what God did that, that makes the difference. Verse 3, glorify the Lord with me, let us exalt his name together. We see from verse 1 that worship was David's personal lifestyle, and it was a lifestyle of worship, very clearly, all times he talks about, his praise will always be on my lips. And that was his personal lifestyle, but, and that should be for us too. Um, if you're like me, you've always got some way to go in there, and uh, you have to work at it. But our pleasure in God is multiplied uh, when others are drawn in to join with us in worship. I, I trust you, you, you feel that. We sang a song at the beginning, there's nowhere else I'd rather be, which is in the presence of God, worship, worshipping with his people. And, and perhaps with the exception of Judaism, uh, as far as I know, Christianity is unique among the world religions uh, in terms of coming together and singing praise to God. Muslims don't do it, as far as I know. They don't sing praise to God. And so it's a wonderful privilege that we come and do it together. And um, I think the principle here is, if we're going to encourage others to worship God, perhaps as a worship leader, um, then we must be worshippers ourselves first. 
I think the psalmist David is is saying, you know, I delight in worshiping God. Why don't you join me? Why don't you? And that's how it should be. People who lead worship, that's that's how it should be. We need to be personal worshippers ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be like tired waiters dishing out indifferent food and not convinced of its goodness. But this opportunity to encourage others in worship is not just for worship leaders. It's for everybody. It's for all of us. So when we come together for worship, we are not just a bunch of individuals um, engaged in personal worship, indifferent to those around us, or we shouldn't be. And um, we, but we're here to encourage one another. And for starters, David's exhortation to glorify the Lord with me, let us exalt his name together, should be in our hearts towards one another. Now if you're like me, you forget about that. But as we've come in this morning, of all the things that you were expecting and looking forward to, was it in your heart to encourage others in worship? Because that's what, what David is saying, isn't he? Come and come and join with me in worship. And what a wonderful thing to say to one another and to imply to one another. Because on a practical level, much of our worship together is singing songs. We have musical worship, and that's been true of Christians throughout the ages. And music and song have been a wonderful way of expressing uh, our worship to God. And um, some of the songs that we sing are directed to the Lord. For instance, I worship you, almighty God. There is none like you. That's very clearly, that's us speaking to God. And that should be our consciousness. And, but lots of others are declaring truths about God. They are speaking about God, the wonders of God, which can, can build us all up. But then some of them are an encouragement to one another, to, sorry, an encouragement to one another to worship. Uh, so when we sing, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud, shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Who are we singing to? Each other. So why do we do it like this? Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. <laughs> it's, we're English, you see, and we find it easier to close our eyes and sing rather than look at other people and try and encourage them to worship. Come, let us... Yeah, that's what we do. I'm sure I've done it. Isn't it? Um, but we are meant to encourage people. And, you know, folks coming in all kinds of conditions, some are burdened, some are distracted, some are tired, and we need to encourage one another. Now, in some churches, you're able, we're able to um, put the chairs, chairs in a semicircle, so you can't avoid looking at some people. But just think about that for a moment. Think about you being able to encourage other people in worship, um, you know, even through the songs that we sing, <laughs> and let's sing them appropriately. If, for any reason, you decide that you've got something better to do on a Sunday morning, uh, rather than come and worship God among the saints, uh, just think about this. First of all, you're missing something wonderful. Secondly, you are depriving others of the encouragement that you could give them uh, in joining together. How do you realise that when you are present, you are an encouragement? And uh, when you are missing, it's disappointing uh, because we love to gather together. Second point, God fears those 
who fear him. Sorry, God saves those who fear him. <laughs> Verses 4 to 7. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. If people are drawn to us and through our worship, which often happens, uh, people come in, they enjoy the worship, it's an opportunity to give testimony to God's goodness and his faithfulness to his promises. God has made wonderful promises and he is faithful to those promises. God says to the prophet Jeremiah, call to me and I will answer you. So it's, a, it's an invitation with a promise. I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. We're all called to be witnesses. We're all called to be prepared uh, to give an answer to those who ask us uh, about our faith. And that, that's part of who we are uh, as Christians. And uh, as we've already noted, our boasting must be in the Lord. He must be glorified in our testimony, not us. We should not glory in our sins by giving too much detail. I, I don't know about you, but I've heard some people give a testimony. And, uh, it, it, you know, it gets a bit steamy sometimes. And, and you're thinking, I don't know, are you looking back and licking your lips about it? And it's not helping me what you're, what you're saying. But you notice David doesn't do that. He doesn't go into detail about his sins. He just acknowledges them that and that God is his deliverer, and then God becomes the focus. And some people, when they're talking, giving their testimony, um, and I did this, and then I followed God, and then I did that, and then my life was better, so I was able to do this, that, and the other. And, you, and it's almost like saying, you know, God is very lucky to have me as a believer. Very lucky. You know? So we have to be careful that our boasting uh, is, the, is in the Lord, and that he is the emphasis. And, we can notice that David's emphasis uh, is that the Lord is the focus and, uh, of his deliverance from troubles and fears. There's a heading uh, to this psalm in the Bible. I'm sure it's in your Bible. Under Psalm 34 it says, Of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and then left. What a strange thing to put in front of But it suggests that David wrote this psalm after this incident. Now, if you don't know it, I'll read it to you. It's from 1 Samuel. It's rather strange, but there we are. That day, David fled from Saul. Remember, David was on fleeing from Saul, running away from Saul, that was out to, to kill him. And uh, went to Achish. Achish. Now, I don't know why it's a bit of a and Achish are coming interchangeable here, but we have to leave that. I don't know the answer to that. Um, the king of Garth. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart, and was very much afraid of Achish, king of God. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate, and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servant, Look at the man, he's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that I have, you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? 
Must this man come into my house? Because he was sent away. Strange, isn't it? But what is encouraging to us, I think, is that all God's heroes, except for Jesus, are flawed. They're all flawed, and we are. And we can identify with them because of that. One of the greatest heroes um, is Abraham, the father of a great nation who became the father of all who believe. He's our father in the faith, as it were. And if you know the stories of of Abraham and his travels, um, that on two occasions, in the presence of foreign kings, he lied about his wife, uh, just to keep himself out of trouble. Uh, And yet, um, God still blessed him. And David is no exception, who here resorted to deceitful behaviour to avoid danger. And although this action is, is... Um, not condoned in scripture nor should we seek to emulate it it should be a source of comfort that that God was still merciful to David who when he came to write the psalm calls himself a poor man you know probably thinking what a poor specimen I am to have gone through all that and um, poor in faith and poor in the other things perhaps referring to his foolishness but at some point in this episode uh, he must have called on the Lord. And in the end, he credits the Lord with his deliverance, not his crazy behaviour. And uh, by the way, David expresses himself. He had eventually come to God humbly, no way boasting of his foolish actions. You notice that. He, he doesn't mention his actions, just that he was a poor man and that God delivered him. Peter tells us, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In his foolishness, David found grace, the grace of God, and God was the one who ultimately delivered him. Notice in verse 5 that this kind of deliverance is not peculiar or special to David. He says, those who look to him, that you could say anyone who looks to him, uh, are, are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. So for all who look to God, who turn to him in faith, He removes their sin and their shame because Jesus bore both our sin and our shame. Jesus was made a curse. Uh, He was made a shameful spectacle on the cross in place of us. So Jesus has taken our shame and, and our sin on the cross. And now there's no condemnation. When people are saved, very often their countenance changes. There is a radiance. We're told that we are born again by the Spirit of God. Something internal happens to us. And for some people it shows. You know, you know they're saved. Maybe you've been talking to them for some time about the Gospel. You suddenly meet them and you know something is different. Something has changed. Well that's what he says. Those who look to him are radiant. David in these verses uh, mentions troubles and fears. Troubles are usually people or circumstances um, that get at us in some way, uh, that are a problem to us, sometimes of our own making, and uh, they can bring fears. But we can also have fears uh, without substance. Our fears can be imaginary, and very often people's fears uh, are uh, imaginary. And we look at life and we say, things are fine at the moment, but what if? Uh, you know, what if the money runs out? Um, you know, what if? Uh, this plane crashes in the worst but we do that don't we think they're fine and suddenly it goes round in our heads what if 
What if? And fear uh, comes. And fear can paralyze and stop us from praying and worshipping God. But in spite of his foolishness and sin, David knew that deliverance came from God alone. And that only God could deal with his past. I suggested that fear can stop us worshipping, but I'm convinced that it was David's determination to worship God in, at all times and in all circumstances that helped him deliver, be delivered uh, from his fears. He sought the Lord. He sought the Lord and was delivered from his fears. It's the truth, isn't it, that the bigger we make God in our worship, the smaller the problem appears. And the less we are troubled uh, by fears. Um, I, I don't know if it's your experience, but it seems as we get older, we wake up more in the night, and sometimes we wake up feeling anxious. Anybody woken and not know why you're feeling anxious? It's <laughs> yeah, strange, isn't it? My antidote is to start singing songs of worship in my head. Joe doesn't usually know, but <laughs> partly because I don't make any noise and partly because she's still asleep. So. But, uh, so I sing songs of worship and, and the fears and anxieties begin to dissipate. I don't always go back to sleep straight away, but it is an antidote and it magnifies God. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Interesting that, isn't it? that the angel of the Lord encamps around them. It's part of God's provision. This angelic host that we know very little about in one sense. You remember that um, we talked about angels on the Sunday before Christmas and we mentioned that they were God's messengers, often given great authority and they were greatly in evidence around the time uh, of the birth of Jesus. But their function is broader. We see if we were to do a study through the scriptures you'd find that their function is broader. And the writer of the Hebrews um, at the end of chapter 1 says this, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? That's us. We're inheriting salvation. So angels are sent to serve us. And uh, those who inherit salvation is another way of saying those who fear him. And of course this fear is different from the kind of fear we've just discussed. It means reverent respect for God and his word. Since angels are largely unseen, we probably have very little appreciation of what they do, their activities on our behalf. Interesting verse and thing that Jesus said about when speaking about little children. He said, see that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you, that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. That children have special angels. Some people have said, when you see the scrapes and things that children manage to escape from, they've certainly got some angels looking after them. Then again, the writer to the Hebrews says this, don't forget to entertain strangers, Oops, by so doing, some have entertained angels unawares. Did you have any angels for Christmas? Did you... The people you invited for Christmas, did you identify them as angels? No, but it does say other words, doesn't it? Anyway. But they're part of God's provision. My third point is that our faith is experimental. Uh, it's experiential and it's experimental faith. He says, verse 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Having shared his testimony of God's deliverance, David now invites his hearers to experience the goodness of God for themselves. Christianity is not a religion of cold law-keeping, is it? You know, tick the boxes, yeah, I've done that, I've done that, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm fine. But it's about experiencing the goodness of God. I trust that's how you see your faith. It's just different ways that we experience the goodness of God. Some people say seeing is believing, but it's actually believing is seeing. We're asked to make a step of faith, having understood, because others tell us that God is good, we take a step of faith, and then we see that God is good. Tasting is knowing. Talking to people about salvation, talking to them about the Lord, can sometimes be um, like giving children unfamiliar food. Here's a dish, really nice stuff, and you put it in front of the child, I don't want that, don't like it. But you've never tried it. I don't, I don't like it. I definitely don't like it. But you've never tried it. Just try a little bit. No? 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 Have you experienced that? <laughs> so easy, isn't it? Please just try it a little bit. It's got things in it that you like. It's because it's dished up differently. And sadly, people are like that. They put up a barrier, and no matter how you dress it up, and however you talk about it, they do not want to know about God and about Jesus, and things like that. And of course, this message is for unbelievers and believers. For unbelievers, give it a try. Taste. Put, a, put your faith in God and see how good he is. And for believers who maybe have become discouraged and have, have become tired of seeking after God, we encourage them more to taste and see that the Lord is good. Verse 9. Fear the Lord, you and his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. Uh, we have an, an exhortation here with a promise. Uh, and we return to the subject of fear, the fear of the Lord, which is not frightened, cowering fear, as we said, it's something quite different, and as we said, it's like childlike reverence. And this will be expressed in various ways, but one of the most important ways we express the fear of the Lord is our attitude towards the Word of God. How do we treat the Word of God? How much of an authority is it in our lives? How much do we tremble, as one writer says, at the Word of God, and know that this is God's word to us. It's very important. Now there may be occasions when we're seeking to gain understanding what God means in a particular scripture, wondering what the original context meant and, and what this means in our context and maybe we have to wrestle with it and agonise about the implications for us um, but we must fear God rather than men. And this is especially true we're to honour God's word, especially when it runs, runs contrary to modern culture. And aren't we finding that the Word of God is being challenged by modern culture? Supported by the government and pressure groups and so on. And for example, today's hot potato, when it's getting hotter, um, is human sexuality, where the church is under great pressure to, to abandon or reinterpret historic biblical truth and conform to modern popular culture. That's what we're under. Now we we hear about gay marriage um, on the news recently. Apparently the Church of England has um, lifted a moratorium on gay bishops. 
Now, there's more detail to be looked into that, but it's just an indication that the church is caving in to modern culture and modern understanding. And it makes it harder for those of us who are determined to hold fast to God's creational revelation of what it means to be male and female. It's, it's not cultural, it's, it's foundational and creational. We are told God made man to be male and female and the kind of relationship that is appropriate uh, in that. And it says, those who fear him lack nothing. We need not fear that by following God's narrow way, we will miss out on anything genuinely good. That's what we're told. Stick to your narrow way and you're missing a lot of good in life. But we know differently from that. To fear God and hold to his truth, particularly regarding human sexuality, will bring the good to us that God intended uh, for sex to bring. Uh, and if we abandon it, uh, then we abandon it to all kinds of depravity. In our stand, however, we must deal with our opponents or those that think differently to us uh, with love and compassion. That's most important. Uh, we're not to ridicule people who think and act differently. We're not to condemn them. Um, but we are to show them love uh, and compassion um, with the hope that maybe um, uh, in the end they can be shown a different way. Verse 10. The lions may grow weary and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Seeking the Lord is always the best thing that we can do. And as his children, we can expect him to provide for our needs, but not necessarily for abundance of possessions and wealth that the world tells us that we need. And the list of what we need is getting bigger, isn't it? No. You, know, you watch the adverts and no, you, cannot, you cannot do without this. How can you live without this thing? Now God has promised to provide what we need. The Lord's Prayer is an example. Give us today our daily bread. Not our daily caviar. Not the light caviar, but you know what I mean. It, God has provided, uh, promised to provide our need. And there are similar verses that express similar truth. So I'm looking at verse 15, 17, 18, 19, 20 and 22. You'll notice there's a few verses missed out there. But the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. That is suggested, that line is suggested to be a, a prophetic word concerning Jesus on the cross, whose bones were not broken. Unusually, and the soldiers used to break the bones of those who were crucified so that they couldn't pull themselves up and they would die early. And it is suggested that's just slipped in there, the word of prophecy in the psalm. The Lord redeems his servants. Not one will be condemned. So God is our provider. God provides for our needs. And we have to see that God is the ultimate provider of our needs. If we looked at these verses, we might think, well, it's not given for Christians to suffer. Um, and, and to be deprived of the things that they need. Sometimes it, it's their calling to be so, uh, that Christians do suffer, often for the sake of the gospel. And we have to see 
God's provision in terms of his ultimate provision for his saints. And that, that life is not just this life, but God has promised us eternal life. And we see it in the context of some scriptures uh, in Romans chapter 8. That, uh, and we know that God works for the good of those who love him in all things. God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that means that even the things that are difficult, even the things that uh, we find we're deprived of, God is able to use them. But we have to look to the ultimate. A little bit later in verse 32, uh, he says that he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely, graciously give us all things? So we may have to wait uh, for God's ultimate provision one day. And of course, later in that, in that chapter, we know that there are those uh, who may well be killed for their faith, but even death cannot separate them from the love of God. Let's draw into a close now. David the teacher. Come, my children, listen to me. This is verse 11. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So, out of his experience of walking with the Lord, in good times and in bad, in disobedience, uh, and in obedience, um, he, he wants to teach young people and new believers perhaps, we could draw them into this, um, as they're beginning their walk with the Lord, what more it means to fear the Lord. Before we are saved, maybe the fear of judgment maybe may have driven us uh, to the Saviour. But the fear of the Lord David wants to teach is motivation for holy living, so that we don't miss God's best. He says, whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days. God does not want us to miss the best in life, but we need to fear him and we need to follow his ways. We are to love and cherish this new life that God has given us and not look over our shoulder on the things that we have left behind and even envy the wicked who seem to prosper, but rather fear God and live up to our calling. So many times in the New Testament, the apostles say to us, in view of God's mercy, live like this. In view of what God has done, then live like this. We are not saved to live as we please. We are given freedom to worship God and to live in ways that please Him, not the way that we please. We are to honour God in all things. Finally, what may seem to be an almost harsh word to finish on, but there is hope in it, Finally, a word for the wicked, the couple of verses I picked out and left. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Evil will slay the wicked, the foes of the righteous will be condemned. We need to see that in the light of all that David has been saying to us in this psalm. The joy of worship, the deliverance from fear and circumstances, God's angelic protection, secure refuge, and provision for our needs in this psalm are promised to those who seek God, who look to him, who call upon him, who fear him and trust him. All people enjoy God's common grace. Do you understand what I mean by common grace? Right? God is good to this world. Uh, he provides resources uh, and blessings to the world. 
It's, it's exemplified by the term, he makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Um, make, there's no discrimination in terms of common grace. But we must never lose fact, uh, fact to the point, unless people uh, repent and turn from their sin uh, to God and receive his mercy and grace through Jesus Christ, his righteous anger still burns against them, which is totally consistent with his righteousness, holiness and justice. But David knew that he was wicked, that, that, that he was a sinner. And if you look at David's life, uh, he was often worse than most. Um, David was an adulterer and even a murderer, and yet he was totally aware of God's mercy and grace to him. And that is, in the scriptures, that is extended to those who are yet believers, those that really are, are under God's wrath. And so, along with David, the word to them is, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come to God. Come to God humbly. Uh, you know, confess your sin. Come to God humbly. And he will receive you. And you can taste and know that this God is good. And that he has so much good for you. Because your sin, your wickedness was placed on Jesus. And in exchange he is willing to give you his righteousness. So taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. Father God, thank you that for most of us here, we've done that. We've tasted and we've seen that God is good. And you are good. And Father, your goodness is beyond measure. There is more to come. We thank you, Father, that we can keep delving into this treasure trove of your grace and mercy and goodness and find that you're never exhausted. So, Father, we, we thank you for David and his honesty. Thank you that we can be honest with you too. We can be real in your presence, Lord. Not, not a sham, not play acting, not telling you what we think you want to hear, but, but just opening up our hearts to you and knowing that you receive us and will bless us and deliver us from our fears. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.